Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Being in a state of rest where we're not striving, we're not fighting, we're not clenched, we're not whatever. That's a really beautiful thing. It's like that feeling you get looking at your lawn after you've mowed it. That's a great feeling, isn't it? Like, that's good, right? So David, we're going to look at a psalm that King David wrote, and it's Psalm 131. And this is one of the Psalm of Ascents, as David mentioned at the beginning of the service. The Psalm of Ascents start at Psalm 120, and they end at Psalm uh, 134. And what these psalms were, were essentially this. Um, Jews that were living in other parts of the Promised Land would journey to Jerusalem three times a year for these festivals. These festivals were incredibly important to the life of faith for the Jewish person. And as they would make their way to Jerusalem, they would recite these songs. They would recite these psalms as they would go. And there's a lot that we could talk about, but basically it's a journey going to see and worship the Lord. And the particular psalm that we're going to look at today is, uh, is kind of at the end of a triplicate within the psalm of ascents because the, these psalms are kind of grouped together. And if you put them all together, it gives you a picture. It gives you a journey. And of these particular three, Psalm 129, 130, and 131, you get this picture where now there's beginning to be looked at this idea that God punishes the wicked. And then you get to Psalm 130, and it's, but he's a forgiving God. And then you get to Psalm 131, and he writes these words. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. <coughs> my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of God. So you think about this. God punishes the wicked. But he's a forgiving God. And David gives a psalm of contentment and rest. And he begins with this. So, so, so let me ask you, how would you answer the question, what does it mean to really be at rest? I don't mean like I just slept good kind of rest. I mean the it is well with my soul rest. That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as Andrew preached a couple of weeks ago, as we're walking through the Psalms, that I am still calmed and quieted. 
that even when I face tragic circumstances or I face my own guilt before a holy God, what does it mean to really be at rest? Here's what we see in this very short psalm. Verse 1, we learn a very important principle about how we can come into rest. And it's this. Rest begins in our humility before God. Rest begins in our humility before God. Look what he says. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What David is getting at is he's getting at, I'm not coming with any pride. I'm not coming with any sort of a notion that, that, that like I'm walking in with, with, with my heart. So the heart in the scriptures is the seat of what makes you, you. It's where your values come from, where your life comes from, where your decision, like this part of me, I'm not lifting it high, Lord. But what's interesting is, is how this psalm begins. He starts with, oh, Lord. Don't miss this. If you look in your Bible, the way that Lord is written should be capital L and then all capitals, O-R-D. This is a very interesting thing because that is the word for Yahweh. David is approaching God, seeing him as God, but also calling him by the name that God has specifically given to his people. See, Yahweh is God's covenantal name. David is not just praying to an idea or an abstract God. He is not coming to an idol carved by human hands. He is praying to a living God who relates personally and powerfully to his people. But David also comes to God not as an equal or something even close to equal. He does not approach God as if God owes him something. And he is approaching him not even thinking he deserves to be there. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. As David approaches Yahweh as God, he, he sees him as the all-consuming fire. He sees him as the God who speaks and shakes the foundations of the universe that he made. There's an old Hebrew proverb I was reading, uh, or teaching, I was reading as, I, as I'm walking through Job in my own personal study time, where it talks about the idea of God. God we've got to understand that God uh, is not nice, necessarily. God is an earthquake. This was it, like, like, we have this idea that God's this nice, benevolent uncle. That is not the God of the scriptures. He is an earthquake uncontrollable by human hands. The almighty God who speaks and the foundations of creation shake. This is who David knows he's coming to. And so he comes in utter humility, content to let God be God and for him to be just a man. He does not come proud. He does not come demanding anything. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. 
I'm not occupying myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. No, this is the foundation of biblical rest. Sincere rest for the souls. And it comes in our humility before him. Biblical humility is knowing that we are dependent on the maker of heaven and earth for everything. That doesn't fly real well with our American mindset, does it? I stand on rugged individualism. I don't need help. I, uh, you know, maturity in our culture and society, and it's not all bad, by the way, is I build my own life, I do my own thing, I don't need help. Like, and, and I see this here in this hardworking class community. I love this community. But man, do you know some people, like their back could be broken and they're out in the field. I don't need help, I'm good. <laughs> but that's not, and how does that affect how we approach God? See, finding rest and humility before God is, is knowing that biblical humility is this. It's a posture of life that seeks him above all things. And it is not a life driven by prestige, by power, or by position. It is trusting his word and thinking less of ourselves. I love what theologian Sinclair Ferguson writes on this passage. For he says, Christian contentment, and I think contentment and rest are similar. He says, Christian contentment, therefore, is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition, think about that, no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints at the time he chooses with the provision he is pleased to make. That's that's real rest before God. But this posture is drastically contrasted with how our society operates and how so many live, how I want to live. One thing our society will never find, I am convinced of this, is rest. Because we are constantly looking for validation, applause, and recognition. Even, I've learned, the most humble among us. Why? Why are we constantly looking for validation, applause, and recognition? Why do we feel that we've got to stand on our own and have that be recognized? Because there's a hole in our souls that longs for recognition and validation. We talked about this last night. And so we think that we can fill this hole by getting the affirmation of others by looking at a job well done that I've done. But this is fickle, it is draining, and it is ultimately an unfruitful game. Like I think about how this applies coaching. We work so hard to win that game. And you win that game, and guess what? There's another one. (laughs) You win that championship, and then then there's another season. Right? Like, it's never enough. You get the applause of people once, and guess what? What have you done for me lately? 
It's a, you, you mow the lawn, and in May, it grows back in three days. <laughs> really long, <laughs> right? So what this causes us to do is go from applause fix to applause fix. Job well done fix to a job well done fix. V seeking validation and recognition fix to validation and recognition fix. But what we see here in Psalm 131 is that true rest comes when we do not live to compare, to compete, and to outdo everyone around us in everything as a goal to try to lift ourselves higher than all others, thinking that that's going to fill that void. What is tragically sad is when we try, is when we strive to live in such a way that we crave that recognition and validation over and against God himself being glorified above all things and having his approving voice being the soul-satisfying voice. I love what John Piper says when he's, he's teaching on, on this psalm as well, and he describes that we can live with two types of pride. Because this type of self-recognition pride is really just, or self-recognition drive is really just pride. And he talks about two different types of pride. The pride of having and the pride of wanting. So the pride of having is a belief that I'm superior and I want to be noticed. Look at my, valid, look at my accomplishments. Look at my decisions. Look at how often I go to church. Look at how I vote. Look at my morals. Look at my standards. Look at my children, and you better behave. Look at, right? Everything is about look at how much I am great. Or there's the pride of wanting. A belief that I'm not really superior. But I deeply crave it. I deeply crave that superiority. They're both prideful. One is warped in on its, well, they're all warped in on itself. One is, look at me. The other one is, I really wish you'd look at me. But both have their end game as being noticed and affirmed. And both come from a proud heart, a heart that's lifted up, a heart with eyes that are, that are lifted for self-exaltation. And this can be seen, and this is, I get that this is, this is hard, but it's absolutely true. This type of pride, having and wanting, can be seen in those who constantly build up resumes of accomplishments and those who exhibit the dark side of pride. No one has ever suffered like me. You don't understand my depression. You don't understand my story. No one has had it worse than me. They're both the opposite sides of the same coin. Validate me. Recognize me. Affirm me. And when our eyes are fixed horizontally for that, it's like a potato chip. You can't eat just one. I got to have another. Got to have another. Got to have another. We work so hard seeking to build a life of significance and want so badly for others to recognize it or so that I even can look my own self in the mirror. Oh, does that ring home sometimes? That we just want to be able to validate ourselves. That's many times the higher bar. 
But my question is, if this is you, how's that working for you? When we stop striving to build our own self-worth and realize that it is only God who is able to fill that need, that it is ultimately his approving voice that you desire, whether you know it or not, rest and contentment are found. Guys, I'll never forget. I've shared this story before, but it's because it was so profound for me. I had a, a, a moment with my dad. He passed away four years ago. And I went down to visit him. Cancer had riddled his body. And I was going to fly home the next morning. And I knew when I walked into my dad's room that it would be the last time I'd ever talk to him. And I sat by his bedside and had a 25-minute conversation with him. By the way, there's no book that teaches you how to have these conversations. Right? And I'm talking to my dad, and we talked, and and it was in that conversation that I heard my dad look at me and say, I'm proud of you, and I love you. And there was something in that moment of having an earthly father's voice speak over you, their love and pride of you, that was just like, it felt like it made me sore. And as I walked out of that room, I started to think about that moment. And then I started to think about how one of the primary ways that God reveals himself to us is Father. And that he made us and we were made for him. And that what we deeply desire most, even more than that precious moment, is to hear the voice of the eternal Father look at you and say, I love you. That's the voice, the approval, and the recognition that your heart is crying out for. This does not mean we shouldn't strive to become all we can. This doesn't mean that we can't use our gifts to the maximum potential. Because that glorifies God when it's done in the right context. It does not mean that we cannot dream big and pursue great endeavors. David was a king. What it means is, and don't miss this, what it means is that the ambition of our lives is not to build our own names. Not to seek the pellet of a recognition and affirmation from the world around me. Or that we desire others to affirm us. It also, does, it, it also does not mean that we come before the Lord with arrogance and think he owes us something. No, our hearts are not lifted up. Our eyes are not raised too high. We know that he is God and we are not We understand that there are some things in life that we will not know. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says this, this, uh, the secret things belong to God. But what he has given us is for our good. That's my paraphrase. You can go read it. It's written better in there. (laughs) Like God has revealed things to us. But there are things we're not going to know. And that's not because God is a jerk. That's not because God is trying to withhold something good from you. He's actually not, he's not actually telling us things because it's for our good. 
Just like when we're parents or grandparents, there are some things your kids just don't need to know. And it's not because you don't love them, it's because you do love them. We are content that we are limited. Oh, is that hard for us? But it's coming with humility before God, content that I am limited and only God himself is unlimited. We rejoice and trust in that anything the Lord chooses to reveal to us is a gracious gift. No, we do not occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for me. There are some things I won't know and some things I can't do. That doesn't make you pathetic. That makes you a human. And when we realize that, you are not far from the kingdom. We understand that life, not made to center on us, but we were made to be centered on God. God is the apex of all creation. He is the one deserving of all praise and glory. And it is his voice, the voice of our maker, that we deeply long to hear. And from this humble position then, Paul, or Paul, uh, David moves into the second verse. Sorry, Paul wrote a lot in the Bible. From this humble position, we see what he says in verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. So rest is first in our humility before God. And rest is sustained by our contentment in God. See, our souls are calmed and quieted because we no longer need to fight the unnecessary battles of performance and approval. We no longer need to live for the vanishing and capricious recognizing and applause of man. Imagine Pilgrim, being a pilgrim down to Jerusalem and you're praying this prayer and you happen to see a mother holding, you, do you know this mothers in the ancient world kids weren't weaned until they were like three or four <laughs> good lord <laughs> but can you imagine sitting there watching a mom holding their weaned child totally content in her mother's arms, rubbing her face, head on her shoulder, just content. I'm in my mom's arms. Not a care in the world. See, we can have this kind of contentment because our souls can be quieted. We can be calmed in the storms of life because, number one, we know that God is God we know that he's the center of the universe and my own life. And the center of my life is not me and what I want. Believe it or not, that's actually a path of contentment. Number two, we rest in who this God is. Because we see him as he's revealed himself. That there is nothing and no one more good more true, and more beautiful. 
none who loves better and none who can compare to him. Where would I go to find something more rich, beautiful, deep, wonderful, true, and unchanging than Yahweh? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Number three, when we know we belong to him, that he's fixed his love on us, that he is our personal covenant-keeping God in whom all our hope is found, that this is the only recognition and approval we need. It's not what our, it is what our souls were created for. It is the satisfaction we all long for. It reminds me that when Tara and I were first married, I had this weird thing that for the first, honestly, several years, even after we had all three of our children, I still would look at her and be like, are you sure you love me? Like, and I'd ask her this all the time. And I, I felt this like kind of like insecurity around her. I'm like, I'm just like, really? Like this? You wanted this? You're committed to this? And one day she, she looked at me and she goes, what more do I have to do to show you that I'm committed to you? She goes, I took your last name. I walked an aisle to you and took your last name. You wear a ring that shows I not only took it, but I covenanted with you till death do us part. She goes, I've bore three of your children. And I stopped and it put the whole thing in perspective. I don't need to focus on my insecurity. I needed to focus on what she did and rest in it. And it changed the whole thing. Now consider this. God looks at you and says, what more do I have to do to show you my love for you? but I don't feel it right now. Okay, I get that. We'll work through that. But I gave you all of this creation to enjoy. I've given you a sun. I've given you moon. I've given you stars. I've given you birds. I've given you fresh air. I've given you really a lot of wind in the Midwest. I've given you beaches and mountains. I've given you other people to live life with. I've given you love. I've given you food. Like, think about this. Every time you taste a strawberry, he didn't have to make it taste good, but he did. He didn't have to make brisket be to the glory of all of us, but he did. He didn't have to help us invent barbecue sauce, but he did. Over and over and over and over. These are all little hints that just say, I'm glorious and I'm providing for you and I love you. Look at this. Look at this. And then the ultimate, I sacrificed my son for you. Is there a... And this is love. Not that we loved him, but he loved us and sent his son to die in our place. If that, and then rise from the dead. If that doesn't convince you, nothing will. I, there's not a word I can give you, not a question I can answer, not a song we can sing. Nothing will calm and quiet your soul if you do not see what he did in Jesus Christ. It is the final word. It is finished. 
But when we see this and know that our God is our promise-keeping, promise-making, sure God, like a weaned child, we are before him who is satisfied, resting in his arms. He is enough. He is our delight. His word is our hope. Our restless souls, as the early church father Augustine wrote, are at rest because they found rest in our maker. It is a peace which surpasses all understanding, an abiding joy which transcends circumstance. It transcends winning and losing. It is more steady and sure than anything that's found in me or will ever be found in this world. God's beauty and worth are literally limitless. He is never mundane. He never wears out like everything else found in me in the world. And so the contentment we find in him brings about an eternal rest that grows and grows and grows to those who know him and seek him. And when we have it, we can't help but share it with others. This is what verse 3 is. The, the, the psalmist now, David, lifts his eyes and says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I want you to have this. I want you to taste of him and see that he's good. Oh, fi stop laboring for the contentment of the world which will never be found and find it in the God of all contentment. Find peace in the Prince of Peace. Find joy in the God who is joy. Find eternal life in the God who is eternal. And so like David, we just can't keep it to ourselves. And I pray, if you are found in Jesus, you don't keep it to yourself. So I have some questions. And I'm going to shut up. See, because resting contentment in God compels us to call others to the same blessed joy. But, I don't know which one of these, maybe none of them, you need to do business with for your own self. Who do you really trust to save you? Who do you really trust to save your soul and navigate you through this life? Is it you? Is it God and? I got a little Jesus. Well, like I'm kind of owed heaven, aren't I? That's dangerous ground. I got a little Jesus, and here's all my works. Or is it, here's all my works, and I'm going to put them on display when I stand before God. Look at, look, look at what I did. Look how many times I went to church. Look how nice I was. Look at how great my holiday celebrations were. Look at my kids. Look, look at my job. Wasn't I impressive? Or... Do you see Christ who came and lived the life that you should have lived? Who died the death for sin that you and I deserved and rose again to new life so that you too can find new life. That he did the work for you so that you can rest and live from that rest every day of your life. 
Do you hear the call of Jesus, who is God in flesh? Say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest before God only comes when we are kneeling at the feet of Jesus. Because he is our peace. Peace with God. Peace with one another. You can rest from your labors to save yourself or that you need to earn it. Christ already has. Do you trust him? Have you placed your faith in him? Do you follow him? Number two, is there anything in you that has a sense of entitlement before God? God, you owe me answers. God, you owe me. Do you know what I've gone through? You owe me this. I'm mad at you because you didn't do this for me. I'm mad at you because I went through this. God, that, that if it's not controlled, becomes a sense of entitlement where now I'm in a battle of wills against someone who I think is kind of my equal. If you're wondering how that works out, read Job. And that really comes to a place of going, God, I actually think I should be in your seat and you should serve me. What is the primary ambition of your life? Do you constantly strive to be noticed and are frustrated when you're not? Either your accomplishments or your lack thereof begin to define you? Do you feel either one of these that causes you to need to earn favor from God? Is God's approval in Christ enough for you? Is your primary ambition not what you think you deserve, but that you're just grateful and want to see Jesus' name lifted high? Are you like a weaned child before God? That as you pray and ponder who he is, as you learn to sit quietly with his word open before you, do, are you learning to simply just enjoy him without needing anything or anyone else. Are you at rest? Like that deep down in your soul, rest. Because of Christ, what he's done, and who you are before God. Are you at rest because God is God, and you I pray that we are. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son. And God, I pray that we would enter into the rest that you offer us. Where fears are stilled and striving ceases, as that great hymn says. That we would come to you knowing that you're God, that we're not, that we're limited and you are not. And that we would actually be okay with that. And that we would be like weaned children before you, delighting in you alone, trusting you with our life and our present circumstances. 
and that the ultimate ambition of our life would be to see your name lifted high and to seek your presence above all things. God, if there's anyone here that does not know you or has not placed their faith in you, oh God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. That they would find peace with you through Christ by trusting in him alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.